0: Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to FraserForum.org, where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is Danielle at FraserForum.org. We'd love to hear from you.
1: That's part of the problem here. When you end up with a state-controlled system of schooling, you end up with a state-controlled curriculum. And when you have a state-controlled curriculum, it is at the mercy of transient political fads and fashions and interests. And that's not a good way to run a school.
0: Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. I'm delighted today to be talking to Professor Derek Allison. He is a professor emeritus at Western University in the Faculty of Education and a senior fellow for the Fraser Institute. And he joins us now. Professor, thanks so much for being with us today.
1: My pleasure,
0: Danielle. We're going to have a long conversation about public education, and I always feel like the teachers union and the school boards and administrators feel like they're under attack whenever we start talking about choice, that those of us who want choice, it's almost like we're depicted as if we don't support public education. And I really do. I mean, I'm a graduate of the public education system. And all my years, I went back and forth between our two public systems, public and Catholic. I feel like I had a really good education, but I feel like something went a little astray. And I hope we can kind of get to the bottom of what might've gone awry in the last number of years. But but, give us a bit of your history on on how how you come to the public education issues so people understand our context.
1: Yeah, well, I've, I've had quite a long and varied career. I started my teaching career in England and I taught in a. Uh, after I graduated from my training program, I taught in a, in a secondary modern Roman Catholic school, in Birmingham, England. And I was recently married, and we couldn't afford to pay the mortgage and uh, eat. So we uh, we came to Canada, and we both taught in Alberta for five years in the north. Then we completed our. Uh, our graduate work at the University of Alberta and came out here to Ontario. Uh, so I've taught in public education facilities in England and in uh, in Canada, in Alberta. And my work here in Ontario has of course been preparing teachers primarily for work in public schools. So that has taken me in and out of public schools all over southwest Ontario. And I've been heavily engaged also in um in teaching and supervising research by school leaders in the Ontario public school system and a few in the private
0: system I'm glad I'm glad you've had that history in England And my best friend in school Julia was from the UK and when she first came over in grade 3 they advanced her grade to grade 4 she went back to England for a couple of years and she came back and she was skipped another grade. So I always felt like they were doing something quite differently in England than, than we were doing here. And so I think it's important to have that international context. I, I wonder, when you look at the systems now, are, are, are other jurisdictions struggling as much as Canada seems to be?
1: I'm not sure, too sure Canada is struggling um, in that sense. Canada, as you know, has been doing really quite well in the international testing stakes. Uh, But that, of course, is only a small sliver of the school experience. Hmm. As we've become acutely aware over the last 18 months, schools do a lot more than just Schools, they are very important safe havens. They are extremely important sites for socialization and social and physical development of children. And of course, they do a very important job in terms of uh, um, guiding children into certain uh, pathways that ideally, we hope, are well suited to their abilities, talents, and aspirations. But there has to be there has to be selection in schools as part of what they do, even though there seems to be a strange reluctance to accept that in certain quarters of the population. These days, the notion and- of equity seems to have, uh, seized hold of people in terms of equity or outcomes. When that, of course, is uh, not what we want at all. We don't want to produce graduates that are all the same. We want to produce graduates that can um, demonstrate to the world their amazing abilities and talents yes. and accomplishments. You know, we want, our, we want our children to shine and making them all into the same kind of graduate is going to ensure that that's not going to happen. And so I, uh, what you important know, about public education is that it must provide opportunities for all children to shine.
0: Well, and I want to talk to you a, a bit about the the history there, because I, I think if we go back historically, and you're going to have to correct me, I think we got a sense that um, uh, early education for children was really more for the upper classes private tutorials, small one-on-one education. And then uh, over time, we developed a notion in society that we needed to have universal schooling. But it wasn't always like what we have right now. Um, a lot of kids left school at a, at a very young age. And I wonder if maybe if you could just map that out a bit. How did we get to the point that we're at today where we have, which I think is good, a broad societal Consensus that that children should be educated up until they finished grade twelve, and I, I, how did we get there?
1: Well, it is a long and and a complex and slightly varied story. So, the origins of our education system in North America lie, of course, in Europe, and mm-hmm. but the European roots are very different from the uh, the transplanted version that initially took root in North America and it, it's worthwhile I think to distinguish in North America between, um, between three main phases the first one was the pre-government involvement stage the next one was growing government involvement and then the third one is government um, domination government and establishment hegemony if you like where the school system has been totally captured by the state, almost totally captured by the state. But in the beginning, there was there was no role uh, for the state. Hmm. So the early uh, the early settlers in uh, Canada, for example, um, established their own schools, their own community schools. So the people in the community, almost all of whom uh, would have children, uh, would start their own school. So independent. Independent, underline that word, uh, privately funded and operated schools uh, were the first schools in North America, and only later did the government become involved. And for obvious reasons, there are there are two main driving arguments, reasons for public education, and the first one is that all children have a right to be educated, uh, and that's uh, that's undeniable. But the problem is, if you leave it in the hands of the parents, not all parents can afford to have their children educated through a school, through a school of one kind or another. So the, the, the rise of public education as we know it today um, was a result of governments becoming increasingly involved in a, trying to achieve both of those objectives. And the first one, of course, was achieved by um, legislation requiring children to go to school. Uh, Although typically the compulsory education legislation lagged behind the provision of public funds to ensure that all parents could afford to send their children to school. And typically, well, what happened in Ontario in particular, and largely most of the Eastern seaboard of the United States, too, was government's first involvement was to defray the cost of teaching, to give grants to help hire teachers, because they're the most expensive input when you just have your own one-room schoolhouse. The schoolhouse would be built by the community um, to hire a teacher, qualified teacher. They would receive some help from the government. And then gradually the government became more and more involved. So the 1850s in Ontario are the time when the government really begins to uh, take over the provision of of schools. But for a long time in Ontario after then, there was a balance. There was a degree of shared involvement in providing education. The government became more involved in regulating and in funding education. But it tended to concentrate on certain aspects of schooling. Uh, One was curriculum. Second was teacher qualifications. Third was training uh, for teachers. And then standards and testing for children. Everything else, such as where we're going to put the school, what we're going to build it out of, what color we're going to paint it, what kind of furniture we're going to use was largely left up to the independent community, uh, who also hired the teacher. So key development there, of course, was the development of school boards, uh, and each individual one or two-room school uh, would have its own school board, one school board, one school. They would run the school, government would provide money and send inspectors around to make sure things were working okay.
0: And you know, I think if we'd managed to stay with that balance somewhere in the middle where you've got the heavy involvement of independent school boards overseen by local people making local decisions small enough that you can actually wrap your head around the complexities of what's happening at the school and having the government involvement, we, we might've been okay, but there's, I get this sense that um, no one really planned for how the system should grow out. I mean, operating a one-room schoolhouse in a small community with that buy-in is very different than the massive school boards that we have right now. I think Toronto's is the biggest public school board, and I think Calgary is the second biggest. And um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this, the Toronto school board, but the, the Calgary school board has had all sorts of governance troubles. And I wonder if if the the size and complexity is now one of the, the heart of the issues that we're facing about why we're even talking about school choice now.
1: Every large city across North America has... Uh at least one large school board. Some have several, uh, for example, in in both Alberta and Ontario, we have public and separate school boards uh, in the large cities, co-terminants. Uh, but if you go to the States, you've got uh, monstrosities like the Los Angeles Unified School Board, which is perhaps the largest on the continent. If it's not the largest, it's uh, second or third largest. Whatever, they're huge, they're just huge, and the distance between the people that are making the decisions, and there are two kinds of people doing that, one is the professional decision makers, the administrators, and the other is the amateur administrators, the elected trustees, the distance between them and the people they they allegedly, supposedly uh, serve, the parents that pay the taxes, and the kids that go to the school is huge, it's huge, it's so far away, they we can't see each other, let alone talk to each other in any kind of meaningful way. And this happened for the best of all possible reasons. Once we began, once the, 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 the roots of public education were well established, and then as society began to urbanize, so as more and more people moved into towns and cities, you needed a new kind of school. You needed multi-grade, multi-room schools, and then gradually they would coalesce. For a long time, of course, in North America, there was a clear distinction between secondary schools and elementary schools, with each having its own governance structure and operational structure. So for a long time, uh, secondary schools had their own school boards, before they were amalgamated to make Mm -hmm. geographically Um, sensible regional areas for the provision of educational services, to use the modern kind of jargon. And all that was done uh, for good reasons. One of the most important of those reasons was to ensure that children in the poor areas of the town, of the city, got equal access to educational opportunities. And if you're going to have a situation where every little neighborhood in the city has got its own school board, uh, you have problems there, hmm. especially if you finance the schools out of property taxes because those areas hmm. with with bigger houses that cost more, uh, they can raise much more money from property taxes than can other areas. So the, the larger this area covered by the school board, The easier it is to pull the property taxes, to share them out across the broader population, and that was one of the driving forces that That, led to the increasing amalgamation of urban school systems. But then we get our third phase, and our third phase is when the same kind of logic, excuse me, gets applied in such a way as to. diminish the role of the local community even if it is a town or a city which was which is much larger than the original local community but to um, usurp or replace or to augment the role and riches of the city with those of the state itself. So now we're talking about provincial governments becoming more directly involved in the establishment and operation of schools. And once that happens, once um, public education becomes just one more budget line in the provincial budget, then it's competing against all of the other budget lines. And one of the patterns that unfortunately develops is that questions of economy and efficiency begin to sub, supplant more fundamental educational concerns.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And the way you've described it, because you had the school building rooted in being paid for by property taxes, I can see why it developed the way you described. But there are jurisdictions that have now divorced that, where in Alberta, for instance, there's a per student funding grant that essentially follows the student to the school board or the school that is chosen. And is that, is that novel? Cause that, that if, when you fund that way, that actually deals with the issue of equity that you were talking about. So it doesn't matter if you live in a rich neighborhood or a poor neighborhood, every school, every student is going to get the same number of dollars attracted to them, which then opens up the discussion about, can we have different delivery models? But I'm wondering, is is Alberta unique that way or is that has that been the way the entire country has gone? Uh, no, divorcing? the
1: entire country's gone the same way. So the property tax, dependence on the property tax has virtually disappeared. <clears throat> so, um, Money is still collected through property taxes, but it's now more typically pooled at the provincial level and then distributed at the provincial level through various kinds of funding schemes. And the men- the one you mentioned in Alberta, where where the money follows the child, is uh, is a straightforward one. Now, what happens when you adopt that mo- that model is you sacrifice accountability. Hmm. So the great thing about the property tax, one of the great things in principle about the property tax is that uh, people know what they're paying, and if they think they're paying too much, they can go down to the school board and protest. But when your school board has now disappeared into a bureaucratic cloud a couple of hundred miles away, and your property tax just gets set by the province and goes into a central pool, there's no way to exercise that kind of accountability anymore. So public education just becomes another public service provided by the state. this in all of those circumstances, there is no immediate um, accountability between the provider and the client. The provider becomes the state and the client uh, is the person that receives the state-provided services but has virtually no say in them. And then you at the other problem,
0: yeah.
1: where whereas the um, where the state, the agencies of the state are vulnerable to being captured by special interest groups, such as the prime example of public education, teacher unions.
0: Okay, we are gonna talk about the unions in just a minute, but I wanna just explore a couple more things on the issue of school boards, because you described finally for me so clearly why it is that school boards are as dysfunctional from a governance perspective as they are. And it's because they don't really have the same kind of purpose that they did in the past, and they don't have the accountability. So I, I guess this is the question I wonder what Friedrich Hayek would have said looking at this model, should we just get rid of the middleman, get rid of school boards, and now that we've got a funding structure that, create, that creates that equity, dollars following the student maybe we need to kind of go back to having individual school councils at each individual school and then operate them autonomously maybe now we finally arrived at a model where where we can return to that or are there still some efficiencies that you get from operating under a school board model i'm sort of struggling to see why we'd want to continue maintaining an outdated structure that doesn't seem to be working
1: yeah it's um there are efficiencies,
0: but but I, we have
1: to redefine. I think we have to recalibrate our expectations uh, and the way which responsibilities are distributed amongst the major players. Uh, I think you're quite right. The reason why we have school boards in their current form is inertia, social and bureaucratic inertia. So people expect school boards to do the things that they're currently empowered to do. Unfortunately, many of the things they currently do don't make sense in the modern context, and they really don't have uh, the power to do them well. Hmm. But we do need, uh, we need regional administrative units to provide the kind of support and administrative structures, services, that school boards do provide. So for example, maintenance of school buildings, uh, attendance to the, uh, attending to the um, the payroll needs and financial and accountability needs and all of the, what some people might want to call administrative of organizations, they need to be attended in some way. But when it comes to matters of education policy, key central matters, what are sometimes called the interna of education. Uh, the sacred details, purposes of schools, the curriculum, teachers, how schools operate, these kinds of questions. We have, we, school boards enjoy legacy decision-making powers that are probably dysfunctional in the current model.
0: That makes sense. Let's talk then about the captured interests that you were talking yeah. about. The uh... The the fact that the teacher, because I think that this, if I could put put my finger on why it is we have so much trouble now with education reform is because we have this approach with our teacher certification where, and this may be just Alberta. So you have to tell me if this is the case elsewhere, where you have to be a member of not only the professional association, but also a member of the union and in private schools, you're able to have non-union teachers. In charter schools, you're able to have non-union teachers. So every time you offer a school option, you end up with the union looking at that as losing members. And therefore, maybe it's not an education argument that they're making about why they don't want to see private and charter schools, but it's a, a labor organization argument. And that doesn't seem to me to be... A, a legitimate way of, of trying to approach right. this issue of school choice. But I want to get your perspective on it because you, you'd you mentioned as we were preparing for this interview that you have a little bit of experience in in the union politics of teachers' unions. So give us a bit of that history and then tell us what, how it is that they might be lending themselves to a bit of the dysfunction that we see in some aspects of the system.
1: Yeah, I've, I uh, I served several years in uh, in a teacher's union in Alberta. So I saw how, teacher unions at that time in the 70s worked from the inside. Um, and since then, uh, in my in my role here at Western, I have done quite a bit of teaching about teacher unions, their history and how they function and so on and so forth. At one time they were important, now they're not. Uh, generally speaking, at the risk of um, bringing down Uh, fire and brimstone on my head from some of my colleagues. I think the modern Canadian teacher unions are an anachronism, and everybody, especially the teachers, will be a lot better off if we got rid of them.
0: Got rid of them. Okay, let's talk about the starting point. You said they once had a useful purpose. What what was that?
1: Before we had teacher unions, the school boards of which we spoke, Um, the one school board, one school model, which, by the way, was still in place in Ontario up until the 1960s, can you believe? Hmm. There were thousands of one and two-room schools run by three-person boards of trustees in Ontario up until the 60s. And that was after a massive shift of population into the cities. And then we had a big, big, uh, a big um, consolidation and creation of large area school boards. But but prior to that, in the 30s, when almost all that no, that's not true, when a high proportion of kids went to the one or two room community schoolhouse run by the three person board of trustees. There were no there were unions, but there there was no compulsory membership. That's the key. So one of the problems was a school board would hire a teacher in the summer and the teacher wouldn't turn up for duty in September because the teacher got a better offer from another school board. And the the original school board had no remedy for this other than suing the teacher that had broken a contract. And of course they couldn't afford to do that. So it was really quite a scandal. Contract breaking was a major problem, and the solution was to make membership in teacher unions compulsory, because then the teacher unions could discipline the members that broke their contracts, and it worked. It was a great solution in the 1930s. So (laughs) great solution, but what went so wrong? So in in exchange for getting, in exchange for stamping out contract breaking, the teacher unions got compulsory membership, and that's the problem. Now, if membership in the teachers union was voluntary, if teachers could choose whether they wanted to be a member of one or another union, if there were unions competing for membership amongst teachers, we'd have a complete. A completely different situation. Now you will you will hear the response to that from the teacher unions will be because um, you can say we can we can work out some kind of a provincial level salary schedule, which is what we're moving to in every province as it is. So that takes care of the collective bargaining issue. We can take care of that in one way. So that main reason for teacher unions disappears. The other reason that's left for teacher unions is to have some means to protect teachers that are unfairly treated by their employers, i.e. unfairly dismissed or accused by their professional body of unethical conduct. So the teacher unions say they need to be there to defend their members against such actions. Well, it's an argument, but other professions don't have to have their unions rely upon unions to do that. I think uh, you and I and somebody else might make a lot of money if we started our own private teacher professional insurance agency where we could offer to provide um, legal advice and legal service for teachers' uh, members if they were unjustly accused as professional insurance. We could do it for a fraction of the price of union dues and we we'll probably do it more efficiently,
0: ok. I want you to talk, though, about you said that you had issues in the past where you would have had to make choices about how to uh, advising your members to go on strike. And I'm trying to then think yeah. of the issues that would lead to strike. And maybe do, do they fall in those categories? So if wages have been taken off the table, and if we have another alternative that we're talking about for how to protect members, I don't think we see, I don't know that we see very much capricious action in in any case where teachers are, are removed and, and require a, a huge amount of representation on that regard. But what else is left to go on strike over? What are the What are the big fights about?
1: Well, of course, there, w- there will be no strikes
0: over. Well, there could be conceivably, but typically,
1: um, there are going no, to be no strikes over over the mistreatment of an individual teacher or alleged mistreatment of an individual teacher. So typically, the, uh, the we see. We see strikes over matters that are deemed to be of professional importance. A classic one is class size for example. Another one is um, involvement in school level decision making and participation in uh, provincial level policy formation. Uh, But these are these are union uh, these are decision areas where I don't think the union has can really claim a legitimate a legitimate stake. Uh, there are other ways of addressing decisions that may be made in those areas. And one of the problems one of the problems the main problem uh, with unions today in schools is the um, imposition of one size fits all rules the way in which schools operate. And and a key concern there is the assignment of teaching duties to members in the school and the determination of class sizes in a school. Those should be management decisions. Now good managers will always consult with their people before they make decisions and good managers will always do whatever can be done in order to bring everybody on board and recognize and accept that this decision is the best decision under the circumstances. But the problem is what everybody in a given school may recognize and accept as the best decision under the circumstances may well be disallowed by the collective agreement rules imposed by the union all by a decision made by the union rep in that school who has been authorized to be involved in decision making
0: let me put a couple of things on the table because I'll I I spent some time in school board governance i was elected to the calgary board of education in calgary so didn't last long but then i also was on the board of a of a private school And two issues that I wonder what your perspective would be on is, and they seem to keep on coming up, and you mentioned class sizes. The other one is instructional hours. And so unions uh, in Alberta, in any case, have been wanting to get defined pupil-teacher ratios, that there should be in the collective agreement a certain average that you're trying to reach of the number of certificated teachers you need to hire, depending on how many kids are enrolled, and then there's also the notion that they would have a certain amount of instructional hours that they would be required to teach. And there's a two thing. There's two things that come to my mind. I want so I'll deal with them in part. So let's deal with instructional hours first, because it, it, the the curriculum is. takes a certain number of hours in a week to teach. So you would think that the collective bargaining agreement would be matched. If it takes 25 hours to teach kids, then you have to teach for 25 hours. But I'm sensitive to the argument that teachers make, that that's a lot of prep work that you've got to do. I I did talk radio for a number of years and we would have, have three and a half hours of broadcast time and it would probably take me about the same amount of time for preparation. So if you're expecting teachers to teach five hours a day, you're kind of actually asking them to prep for another five hours on top of that. So I'm I'm sensitive to the argument, but I don't know how you resolve that. How do you create a working condition where you give people enough time to do the learning plans and, and the lesson plans and make sure they've got interesting material and make sure that they can do the tutoring of students that are struggling and make sure that they are able to mark the exams. I think it's a real problem, but I don't know what the solution is. I think the unions are trying to deal with it by proxy, by limiting the number of instructional hours, but is there a better way to approach that?
1: You just can't do it centrally. That's the mm. bottom line. Uh, it's got to be done locally. It's got to be done in the, by the people involved in the actual circumstances concerned. Now, yes, we can have guidelines, we can have uh, principles to follow, but not hard and fast rules. And that's what the union wants. The union wants rules written down in black and white. Now, they will concede a degree of, of um, adjustment space. So they'll concede the need for upper and lower bounds if it comes to class sizes or instructional hours, at least at the beginning. But those will tend to narrow over time. That's the experience. Because really, unions have got little else to do but uh, sit at the bargaining table and bargain. So they need stuff to bargain over, and that's one of the things they're going to bargain over. But the way to solve those problems is to leave it in the hands of the individual, in my, from my perspective, leave it in the hands of the individual uh, schools and their uh, boards of governors, if they're lucky to have one, or their school council, if uh, if that's allowed, or whatever. Now, the problem, of course, is whether there are going to be sufficient resources to be able to make any solution work but the only way to, to deal with that is to let things unfold and if not, then individual representations have to be made. To rely upon the union to push and argue for greater resources for schools is perhaps not the best way to do it because once again, they're not tailored to the needs in a particular school and particular circumstances. And uh, they typically end up with across the board plans and rules for allocating funds that don't fit every situation right. And then those rules begin to distort the way in which the schools operate. Because if the schools do not have the autonomy to make the decisions they need to make, which they believe are in the best interest of their students, their parents, and their teachers, of their teachers as members of the teaching profession, not as card-carrying members of the teachers' union. If you don't have the autonomy, schools don't have the autonomy to make decisions like that, then you are in a situation where the great virtue, the great power of schools is being sacrificed to bureaucratic interests. all you're doing is you're just making cookie cutters, Mm -hmm. cookie cutter educational experiences which are going to defeat what I think we must all recognize
0: and accept are the important goals of education. Such great observations. Let me ask you another question, though, about class let, size, because let I think
1: we give we're... Me one, one one point on this, please.
0: You know, um,
1: in all high schools, you typically have a high school play production of some kind. Now that can take a lot of work to put on who's going to do it. Well, it's gonna be the drama teacher or the English teacher or somebody like that and a group of volunteers. How do you build that into the work schedule for your teachers? Mm -hmm. How do you give them credit, teaching credit, under whatever the model or rubric might be for doing that? Well, and the same thing applies to coaching sports teams, running clubs, and all of these kinds of things outside of the classroom, out of classroom activities. Now you and I know, and I'm sure most listeners are, whatever, also know if they've had children in school or if they've worked in schools, that those out of classroom activities are hugely important to the kids and to the quality of the school itself. And when you start bringing in hard and fast rules about what the assignable teaching hours and other working hours of teachers are going to be, then those are the things that get sacrificed first.
0: That's such a good point. I'm just, you're you're taking me down memory lane because I'm remembering my science teacher was my basketball coach and my drama teacher also put in an immense number of after hours on the productions that I worked on. And it seems to me there'll be some teachers that feel compelled and motivated to do that in a volunteer way, because we all volunteer in outside extracurricular activities, but it's, it's tricky in a school environment because I think there's an expectation that it's going to be your teachers guiding you through that. But I don't know how you solve that. Uh, maybe you just assume that uh, people are also motivated for volunteerism the same way in any in in the teaching profession as they would be in any other profession and those decisions can be made locally is that is that sort of summarizing where you're going with that
1: yeah yes i yes very much so i just to go back a few bases in our conversation here uh we were talking about the desirability of an alternate governance model where uh each school has its own governing body again as as in the old days i'm not going to say the good old days because in many ways they were bad old days but uh, it would make more sense if each school was a much more autonomous unit and you raise the question when you mention that to whether that's feasible today and uh, i meant to try and interject then and i forgot but it's it can go now because that's what most independent schools do all the time Mm -hmm. that's how they run so the one of the great ironies today we hear people talk about um, public school as a beacon of democracy in a free society, uh, preserving all of our important values, holding ignorance at bay, and so on and so forth. But the reality is the independent schools in every province, in Ontario and Alberta certainly, and probably most other provinces, have more parents involved in their governance huh. than all of the
0: public schools Combined. That's remarkable. And there's a big correlation, isn't there, between parental involvement and student achievement? What's going
1: on? You're really interested, particularly if you've got skin in the game to a tune of thousands of dollars of school fees that you're paying as well. But that's a different issue, which we may get to later. Yeah. But if you are directly involved in the decisions that affect your child's education, then you pay
0: attention. Totally. Let me ask you about class size, because I think reflexively, we just believe that, of course, if you had smaller class sizes, more one-on-one, you'd get better outcomes. And so I think that there is, um, that's why it's such a compelling argument about why it is we need to restrict class sizes. Is there an argument we're not considering? Is there some other side to that story? Oh yeah,
1: that doesn't work. Uh, uh, The research shows quite clearly that uh, as a general rule, just reduce smaller classes, by themselves, are not going to make much of a difference until you get down to ridiculous levels. And it depends upon it depends uh, hugely upon the age of the of the learner, and the subject being
0: taught, and the setting.
1: Now, I assume you attended university lectures.
0: I did, and there were some some that were hundreds of kids in the class. There you
1: go, and they worked, right? They worked,
0: provided the students paid attention. And there's no way you can get
1: students to pay attention if they don't want to pay attention. Same applies in a class in a regular school with 10 students in it. If they're not gonna pay attention, you're not gonna get them to pay attention. So just reducing the class size by itself, it's a mechanical solution that looks attractive, but doesn't work. And we have the, we have the research evidence uh, to establish that really beyond any question, but the really killer argument here on class size are two killer arguments. And the first one is uh, we have empirical evidence to show that of various ways of improving classroom instruction that have been tried and tested, there are hundreds of different ways that have been investigated. Uh, Techniques and methods of improving classroom instruction Smaller class sizes is in the lower third or lower yeah. quarter of effectiveness. Well, so then, that's the first killer argument and the second killer argument is again, it's the argument from general principles because circumstances are different. Yes, one class of the same age children in a similar school will react differently from another class depending on who the teacher is and how many kids there are in the classroom and -hmm. what the subject is. Now, one rule, one, and that's what the teacher unions want to do, one average class size for everybody, and it just does not allow the flexibility needed to be able to properly match the resources you have available to the teaching circumstances that need to be served.
0: All right. One of your answers, you said this might get me in trouble with the teachers unions. This next question might get you in trouble with parents, because I think one of the issues I would observe about what's changed since I was in public school is we used to have, I think we called them special classes, which is, I think, maybe one of the ways in in which um, people objected to having those kids who needed additional help being outside of the regular classroom. And then They'd be in classes of six or eight, if maybe they had a learning disability or behavioral disability or dyslexia or English as a second language or autism. And then uh, there would be integration for those classes that were non-academic. So the kids would come into the class for art or for phys ed or for some of our option classes. And I think there's a sense now that we want all kids of all abilities in the same classroom. But you hear the argument from teachers that look, if I've got four kids with independent learning plans that are needed because they've got autism or some other special need, and then I also have someone who's acting out from a behavioral point of view, and then somebody else who's got round-the-clock medical conditions that they need, we're not we're not pr- bringing in the supports in the classroom to deal with that whole range of, of needs. And so I think that's what the teachers are saying. If you're not going to give me the supports, then reduce my class size. And I, I don't know how you'd solve that issue. I don't I don't know if we need to revisit, that's what I'm saying, I might get you in trouble. Do we need to revisit the amount of inclusion that we have in the academic studies? Or is that the right answer, but but we just need to make sure that we've got the education assistance in there to the, provide the support. Would, would you like to weigh in on that?
1: Uh, I, I'm not too keen to weigh in on it, but uh, but I certainly will. Uh, I'm willing to share my views on that. I think what you what you focus on there and that is that how best to accommodate special needs children in the regular school is, is very important. But it's only part of a larger question, a larger problem. Uh, at the outset or earlier on, I mentioned, um, in my view, I think uh, what we should be aiming to do in schools is uh, providing the best possible match for the interests, needs, abilities, strengths, talents of every child. So I want every child to shine. And I don't think we differentiate enough in the school system to allow that to happen. As children grow older, as they turn into younger adults, as they become adolescents, and as their characters develop and their cognitive strengths begin to flourish and so on and so forth. We get a very wide blossoming of talents. And one of the problems I think with our current secondary schools is that we don't accommodate that 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 blossoming as well as we should, because we want to make all kids take the same course subjects. Mm-hmm. And we want there's increasing level increasing pressure take for them to all take at the same level. So recent developments is school boards are getting rid of advanced courses in various ways. And I think that's a grave error. Because we're we're doing the kids a harm, doing the kids harm, and we're doing ourselves harm too. You know, where is the next um, Nobel Prize winner going to come from Mm -hmm. if we don't allow potential Nobel Prize winners to blossom, to let their talents develop? Now, the question you raised is at the other end of that scale. Now, whether you like it or not, uh, cognitive strength, cognitive ability as well as many other uh, human traits are normally distributed in the population. So some people um, are are better, they have stronger talents than the average. Other individuals have weaker talents than the average. That is a fact. Uh, You really cannot deny that. The problem is How do we give the people on both sides of the average the best chance to shine? That's the question.
0: And I think you're so right, but that's where I think the controversy over testing comes in. We've got integrated classrooms with people of all abilities, then having a test that's designed really to measure how well you're doing on academic achievement, which you've already said, follow a natural normal distribution curve, does that then create conditions for failure and discouragement? I think, and do we then end up judging teachers on on a factor that they they really have no control over? And so, I want to get into this issue of testing to get your understanding of whether we're we're testing the right things? Are we testing too much? Are we testing the right students? Is there? Is there some sort of uh, approach that we should be taking to, to testing to try to to try to bridge this divide? Because it seems like the parents want to know: Is my child performing at grade level? Are they are they are they matching the mark? Are they on a university track? so i think it gives important information to parents and also to students i was pretty academically inclined and i like taking tests but there are others who might might not be so a lot of you get a lot of anxiety among kids when it comes to testing and you've got some kids who might be on a, a track to go into the workforce and and trades education that for whom it might not be as critical for so so i'm trying to figure out if there's a Maybe this is the, the, the problem, We try to find these one-size-fits-all for everyone, and maybe it needs to be to, uh, to be segregated in, in different ways. So, so tell me your basic approach to testing.
1: We need more of it, but it needs to be much more varied. That's the bottom line. The um, teaching is, um, testing is an in- integral part of teaching. All teachers test kids in their own classrooms in different ways you do it every time you actually teach kids as you're interacting with the kids you're paying attention to uh, who's taking it in who wants to ask the next question where they go you know that's part of the process and you formalize that in various ways with in-class tests of various kinds and so on so testing is built into the process so I really don't have much sympathy with the argument that we shouldn't have formal testing Uh, at the school and system and provincial level. Um, We should. We need it. It's necessary. We need to know it's necessary for two reasons. The one you said, the kids and the parents want to know how well they're doing. And on the other hand, the system needs to know how well it's doing too. And we need some kind of an honest measure on both of those questions. Now, let me just add I can say a bit more on that, but let me just pick up on one point that I don't want to get lost as we go forward. Why is it that parents want to know how their child is doing?
0: i I think it has to do with whether they need to know to know whether they need remedial support if they're falling behind to know whether um uh their child is 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 likely to go on to university and become a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor or whether they have to get them career counseling for for some other line of work. those would be the kind of the things that would pop to my mind
1: yeah, exactly right. Uh, they want to know how well their kids doing how well their kids getting on because maybe. What they will find out is the kids in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Kids kids in the school that's not, not working for that child. Uh, maybe they'll be stimulated to begin thinking about how can we find a better set of educational circumstances for Johnny or mm-hmm. or Sally or whatever the child may be. Uh, why is there a concern here? And the problem, one of the problems is if, if uh, there's no escape from the school the child is, is uh, sent to attend, then there may be very little opportunity to get around that. You see what that does? That creates an incentive not to test kids, or if indeed you do test the kids, not to be entirely open and honest or share all the information widely uh, with parents.
0: That makes most, sense. And, and if you have a school, school board, boards, where it's one most size... school boards oh. have their own internal tests.
1: Mm-hmm. The Canadian Test of Basic Skills, I believe, is still sold in its thousands of copies. Uh, but um, I don't think that many, most of the school boards that uh, administer those tests to the kids share the results with the
0: parents. Interesting. So and the other part, too, is that if you've got a school board where they're offering one size fits all between all of their campuses, even if a child isn't thriving at one school, you do the test. If you move them and they face the same circumstances at the same kind of school, they're not going right. to thrive as well. Unless,
1: unless there's variety, unless there's different kinds of school, unless the school is adaptable uh, to the child or the parents can find a school that they believe is better suited to their particular needs and strengths of their child. And, and one of the tools for doing that is, of course, testing, honest, reasonable testing. Now, when it comes to basic um, basic achievement testing, that, that is not too hard. Uh, I mentioned the Canadian test of basic skills, which is um, those kinds of tests, uh, norm reference tests, as they're called, are not popular these days because they compare the results of individual test takers with the population at large, mm-hmm. and they say, well, your child is at the 85th percentile 45th percentile, whatever the case, and that is considered to be uh, in somehow improper in some circles, whereas the, the criterion reference tests that we see in all of the provinces these days just tell, tell you whether your child is is at the expected level or above or below the expected level, which can be pretty meaningless because if your child is close to the expected level, they're below it. And if they're a long way from the expected level, they're also below it, which is not very helpful uh, in terms of trying to take remedial action.
0: You know, I, I really loved, liked the Canadian basic skills test. I, I got tested quite a bit when I was in elementary school. And I remember the little bubble letters that I would fill yeah. in with a HP pencil. And so I enjoyed taking those. And I've often felt like in some ways, especially for math, probably most of the sciences, and for English, when you're talking about comprehension and and grammar, that that those would be almost all you'd need test kids at the beginning of the year to see where they're at, test them at the end of the year to see what they learned. And that gives you a lot of what you need to know. And you don't really need to then be content specific in your curriculum. But it seems like we've gone the other way that we're not all that interested in testing on a regular basis for basic skills. But then we do these achievement tests, which teachers don't like because they say, oh, we're just teaching to the test so that the kids can get a high grade. And I'm wondering if my if my observation is correct, that we actually should be reverting more to the truly standardized tests that can be compared across entire populations and even between countries. And, and maybe the grade three, six and nine tests are, are not as, as important.
1: I agree with you. Um, I think, well, actually I think we need both is what we need. Uh, we, we, we have developed something of an anti-testing culture in our schools and in our society at large. Mm. Um, uh, the kind of tests that you have to take in order to qualify for, for particular status these days um, have declined, the number and intensity have declined. So typically you take a course these days, you don't take a test. So you can't just demonstrate your ability and skill. You have to go on a compulsory course in order to uh, qualify to administer agricultural chemicals or own a firearm or whatever the case may be um, but that's taking us off track there has been this uh, sort of anti-test culture
0: mm-hmm.
1: that, uh, that has that has developed but tests are important they have their uses there are different kinds and they should be used judiciously uh, I tend to agree with you I think that um, i think that in some in some subjects uh, some kids at some levels it will make a great deal of sense for teachers to give them lots of tests as part of their instructional strategy not not to make them better test takers just because taking a test uh, stimulates your thinking and it tests out your understanding and ability and this can be an individual action the same way as you try and do a couple more push-ups each week or whatever, you run a few more blocks in your, your training regime or whatever it is you do, you can try and get, uh, knock off a few more tests. There are lots of them available on the internet for pizza. You can build them into your instructional program reasonably. And that gives the lie to this old chestnut about teaching to the test as well, you know. Well, if less than. Valid, you should be teaching to the test.
0: Truly. And you know, we're in violent agreement when it comes to English and math. And I think the sciences, because there's hard, hard data. And there's just a base of knowledge that you need to know to move on to the next level. Where I get hung up is on social studies. And I'm, I have to give you full admission, which is so strange. I It was my least favorite topic in, in school in K to 12 education. And the reason why it's strange is because virtually everything I've done post- uh, secondary has been in the area of political science and economics and civics. So my 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 entire career has been in the public policy world, but I I feel like social studies doesn't lend itself very well to teaching in the K to twelve education system or in the testing environment. And I, I think this is where a lot of the challenges and battles are coming in. Is that are we teaching kids? critical thinking skills they need in order to analyze what's going on in the world or are they being indoctrinated with a particular political viewpoint and i i'm kind of curious about how you would uh, assess social studies in in the environment that we find ourselves in maybe we should just pull it out completely or maybe make that one entirely child-centered you tell the child you've got to go do some interesting uh, political or historical or geography assignment and you can make it self-directed or is there a common base of information that we all need to know. I think there is a common base of information.
1: It's called civics, and we need to know how our how our society is set up and how it uh, how it is structured and how important decisions get made. So I, I think there's a strong argument for civics to have a higher profile in the uh, in the school curriculum. As far as the rest of the stuff that might be subsumed under the nebulous heading of social studies, Um, there is real knowledge there, but I wouldn't call it social studies. Social studies is an invented term.
0: Mm. It
1: came came to the forefront in the 50s and 60s as a more inclusive, progressive way of um, teaching kids. And it was used, of course, to replace geography and history. So much of what passes under the diffuse heading of social studies in the lower grades these days is geography and history. I'd be much more in favor of teaching geography and history, because they are, uh, from a philosophic point of view, real subjects, they are disciplines, they have solid knowledge, they're in touch with reality, two different kinds of reality. They're in touch with the human experience through time. And they're in touch with the physical world around us. And uh, these are important dimensions of human understanding. And as you progress in life, if you go into advanced studies, as you said yourself, you will uh, likely be inducted more directly into these disciplines of knowledge, geography, history, economics, (coughs) law. Uh, and, and these are real subjects, uh, whereas social studies, I think, is uh, is not. It's just um, it's a catchall into mm-hmm. which anything can be thrown by any group of people that manage or any interest that manage to exercise influence over the specification of the official curriculum, and and that's the that's part of the problem here. When you end up with a state-controlled system of education, state-controlled system of schooling, you end up with a state-controlled curriculum. And when you have a state-controlled curriculum, it is at the mercy of transient political fads and fashions and interests. And that's not a good way to run a school.
0: I completely agree with you. But you know what's so interesting is that even in Alberta, which I think is doing a pretty good job of providing educational choice to parents and to students, we've got homeschooling, we've got charter schools, we've got two major public education systems, one under the Catholic umbrella, one under the public umbrella, and we've got a whole series of private schools. But one of the things I find so interesting is there isn't flexibility on curriculum doesn't matter what kind of school choice model or school you, you go to, you have to have a baseline curriculum that every student gets taught. You can do an enhanced and enriched measures, but the state continues to decide what, what the curriculum ought to be. Ha- have we got that wrong?
1: Oh, from my view, yes. I call it curriculum hegemony. Uh, when you have the curriculum, when you have school curriculum controlled by uh, one single inflexible monolithic interest, uh, you have a problem. Uh, typically, throughout history, school curriculum has been diffuse. It's been the individual understanding of the local authorities and the individual teachers that have drawn upon the shared wisdom that is recognized as mm-hmm. valid knowledge and important skills, and that has formed the curriculum. Now, there's an important distinction, a crucial distinction between the official curriculum, which is what's written down in the curriculum guides authorized by government, and the actual curriculum, which is what gets taught in classrooms. Now, there can be, in the best of circumstances, there's there's something of a tenuous link between the two. Uh, If you were to survey, if you were to somehow monitor every classroom that was teaching particular slice of the curriculum at a particular time, you would find considerable variation around uh, the accepted mean, because that's teachers just interpreting the understanding and responding to the needs of their kids. Well, they can do that if they understand their subject anyhow. And if we're talking about the lower grades, I hope that all of the teachers understand the basic knowledge and skills we expect the younger children to learn. They don't need a detailed curriculum to know what they want to teach them, or how to teach it. They certainly don't need a couple of hundred pages of detailed, dense text in order to do that. And if you're in the high school, we hope you've got a university degree in the subject that you're teaching, so you know something about it. Again, the same thing applies. You don't, you know, there used to be more professional discretion in developing and delivering the curriculum uh, it, uh, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, when teachers were, were not trained as as highly as they are today. And that, and that is beyond ironic. That is problematic. You know, if we're gonna invest huge amounts of money and time in turning out the, the most highly educated and professional body of teachers that the world has ever seen, and then we're gonna tell them, this is what you're going to have to teach. And you're going to have to make sure you teach all of these objectives and you've got to cover all of them within this period of time. Then then obviously we're trying to run in two directions at the same time. It just well, doesn't make any sense whatsoever.
0: Do you know what's interesting? I wonder if there was more discretion over curriculum because in, when we go back to that one room school house model in the community you might be at the same school from the time you entered kindergarten all the way through up to grade 12. And so you had some knowledge of what each child learned in the previous year that you can build on the next. For me, I I switched schools, I think, seven times. And maybe that's part of it is that when we've got so much movement between different school systems so that kids don't fall behind, you need to have some uniformity that, you know, that regardless of what school choice you have, you've learned the same things in grade one. Does that make some sense or is there some way around that?
1: Yes, it makes perfect sense. And of course, in the current time, people are rediscovering this notion of, uh, of uh, students helping students to learn, uh, a with family groupings and mm-hmm. schools and so on and so on and so forth. Uh, but you're right, uh, in, the, in the archetypal uh, one-room schoolhouse, everybody was in much the same boat and they helped each other. Now, I'm not saying we need to go back to that. Log cabin schoolhouse, far from it. I'm very much in favour of uh, using all of the modern technology that we have at our at our fingertips in order to improve improve the learning and teaching experiences in classrooms. I believe classrooms are the most important element of the education system. Um, so, and I want them to be as up to date as possible. But that includes, in my view. Um, celebrating autonomous professional teachers, not compelling them to stay in their lane.
0: Let me post to you another educational model, as I already mentioned, I went to a lot of different schools, so I was exposed to a lot of different educational models. And one of the schools that I ended up with in in high school, and I haven't seen this replicated elsewhere, but it was a learn at your own pace school. It was called Bishop Carroll High School in Calgary. And the interesting notion behind it was that you would have a, a testing center that you would go to, you'd go to a couple of seminars until you felt like you learned the material and you'd be able to have access to a A a tutor or a guide, a teacher who could get you through the subject. You'd go and take the test. If you didn't get seventy percent, you had to take it over again. And so they wanted to make sure that you knew the material before you moved on. But it kind of took you away from the classroom environment. And I'm I'm wondering if if we need to do a little bit more of that, learning at your own pace, because some kids are just brilliant in certain areas. They'll eat up mathematics and they'll want to do all of the higher level courses in mathematics rather than being held back in a a classroom environment that's a little bit artificial, but then in the same breath, being able to have the uh, advancement with your peer group and the camaraderie that happens in a classroom and having a teacher that you can have a relationship with. I understand why all that's important too. And so I'm wondering how how to reconcile those two things.
1: Well, yes, uh, I agree with you Uh, in all respects. uh, You're just reinforcing how I started in many ways. Uh, Every child is unique. Uh, We Mm -hmm. need to to take that seriously and we need to uh, try as hard as we can to put um, a smorgasbord of learning opportunities and alternatives and experiences in place so that every child can find a good match for their unique mix of talent, skills, abilities, hopes, aspirations and dreams and can follow through on them. Now those, that complex of ability, skills, dreams, and so on, that matures and becomes more varied across the population as children age. So yes, indeed, the Bishop Carroll High School model where you didn't have a limited curriculum there either, did you? You could go up and study whatever you wanted to study uh, within the broad framework of what the tests were gonna look like. You know, you know this in many ways is the the Oxbridge University model. Mm-hmm. Where where the students attend uh, tutorials, but they don't have to attend lectures, and they do their readings by themselves, and then they they sit the exam and they see how well they do um, to determine what happens next. That's that's a perfectly viable educational model, and I I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be available uh, reasonably accessible to all, if not most, children. But I also don't see the reason why it should be the only model available, mm-hmm. the only way for all children. There should be a wide range. Now my use of the word smorgasbord was ill-advised because it smacks of us a kind of open, undisciplined access. And uh, there needs to be a little bit more control than that usually. So we don't want to have kids studying witchcraft in order to get high school credits, I don't think. Uh, or if we can think I can't think of one offhand.
0: That was a good one. No disrespect to J.K. Rowling story, and Hogwarts. But... How about
1: astrology? You know, I think a high school kid should be able to do a course, get a credit in astronomy if she wants to, but I don't think she she should be allowed to do a high school course in astrology because it's just not a recognized subject.
0: That makes sense. Look, talk to me a bit about, about trades education. You may have to correct my understanding, but I- need it a John, lot more it. Well, let me ask you this, because I, I seem to recall reading John Locke on education, and he obviously was talking about education for uh, those who were getting private education and, and tutors. But my recollection was, that his recommendation was that every student develop the ability in two skilled trades. So, uh, and and that seems to me a, a pretty solid way of approaching education, that shouldn't we take the approach that every student should be able to graduate from high school and leave and go directly into the workforce prepared to, to take on a career, and should they choose to go to an academic life, that would be something that they could choose to do. It seems like we've got it the opposite. It seems like our education system is geared thinking every student's going to go to, onto university, and then the seventy percent of kids who don't le- are left floundering about until they can find something that they can turn into a, a skilled profession and and that seems to be my impression. I don't know if that's the case everywhere. do you think i'm uh, do you think i'm I'm being a, a little bit too harsh on that or do do you think there's another uh, do you think how should we approach that whole issue?
1: yeah we, we we need a much more diversified and recursive post-secondary educational system. There should be, multiple routes for uh, young adults to choose to follow in the senior years of high school and after high school. I I think that, uh, once again, I'll be calling down fire and brimstone on my head from the establishment here, but I firmly believe that university is not for everybody. And if you make university, Suitable for everybody, it ceases to be university. Uh, you, you. If we wish to have a cutting-edge, um, research-based institutes of higher learning, which is what a university is, then um, I think it should be self-evident that uh, not every young person should want to go to should aspire to go to university or should be allowed to go to university Um, once again i fall back on my basic doctrine everybody has their own unique mix of talents and abilities promises and contributions to make to the world and i think we have an obligation to give everybody good fair equal and open opportunities to follow their stars so they, too, may shine. All right. It is the case that the university lane, the university route, is not the most suited for everybody. The problem is there aren't that many alternatives in Mm -hmm. our society, especially if you were to look at what they do in some European countries, in Sweden or Germany, for example. And there are all kinds of hybrid um apprenticeship higher education training models that people can follow and we have hardly anything like that in canada
0: and i totally agree with you so i think we've pretty firmly made the case for choice everything keeps sort of rolling around back to the idea that we need choice and diversification individualized program tailored to kids, allowing every student to have a pathway that allows them to shine to the best of their abilities. Now, the question is, how do you pay for all of that? Because I think this is what governments default to, is that you need to have a cookie cutter approach so that every single student would get the same amount of money, and you need to be able to provide them the package of education within that same amount of money. Now, I don't, I don't know if there's another way to fund education, so that um, you can provide a different range of experiences. And I'll give you an example that was given to me, for instance. Part of the reason why shop classes get cut out of K to 12 or call it junior high and not education is because sometimes safely you can only have 15 children in a classroom if you're going to be teaching industrial arts so that you have a proper supervision if they're dealing with heavy equipment. you've also got more expensive education because you're dealing with heavy equipment in a large area. It's a lot easier to have 30 kids in a physics class. And so how do we deal with that uh, that problem, that ultimate funding problem, where if it, we're going to fund every student equally, not all education programs have an equal cost. Do you have some insights on that?
1: I don't know about insights, but I've got observations. And the, the basic problem with the funding there, and the example you give is, is an excellent one, is the money goes to the school and the school allocates the money. Internally, to fund uh, to fund what it has to do according to the rules stipulated given by the the state, or to fund those things it thinks it it needs to do in its particular circumstances. If the school didn't have any income of its own, if the school had to take fees paid paid for by clients, then it will be much more responsive mm-hmm. to what the client needs and demands might be. And it will be in a position to diversify. So one school might decide to run two shop classes. Another school might decide to run no shop classes, but have a gardening class instead, or whatever the case may be. And then, of course, the state pays the parent, and the parent pays the school.
0: So you think that that would be the approach that, because I guess this is where I'm sort of struggling, is to understand how much should be covered by the state and how much should be covered by individual parents. And I think where we began when you were talking about every child having the right to an education, it's a little bit of a different argument for K to 12 education when they're minors than when they're in university. In university, we've accepted that if you go into university, there's a portion of the education you have to fund yourself. I think in most places it's around 30% and then 70% is paid for by by the state. But is there any argument that you would make for why uh children of wealthier families should be asked to pay more out of pocket or should we be trying to cling to the principle of universality because it doesn't matter what kind of home a child came from the uh they don't have the means and the money themselves to be paying for it And we recognize that we want every child to be able to have the potential to have to, to the same education how do you how much should if any um, an individual family shoulder to pay for their the ch- their child's education,
1: as much as they choose. Hmm. But the, but the prior the prior question is how much should the state pay? Mm-hmm. That's The question you started with, and the state should fund the full cost of a of a broad, uh, enlightening education for every child. But just because the state pays for it doesn't mean to say the state has to deliver it. That's the difference. The state has to pay for the good of society and for the good of all children. An educated society benefits everybody. The state, we as a society, we have an obligation to ensure, if we can use a phrase uh, that has been abused in its application, that the state, we as a society have an obligation to ensure no child gets left behind. Every child must have um, an opportunity, um, a good opportunity, a guaranteed opportunity, to receive a good education suited and by good I mean suited to their talents and all the rest of the, all the rest of the litany that I went through there with regard to individual characteristics. But the state doesn't have to deliver it. There this are is delivery really... models and. I would prefer to see that the state doesn't deliver any schools, but I will concede that that's that's not not feasible. So we're gonna have to have some state schools in society, but I think the state should also allow and encourage and help support a wide range of non-state schools, non-public schools provided They meet a set of minimal standards. And those minimal standards, I think, are going to be, should be those uh, which uh, are um, acceptable in a free and democratic society. You
0: have, you are. You have, I think that's the fourth thing that's going to get you in trouble with the educational establishment. saying there should be no state (laughs) schools, because I would put it to you that the educational establishment would argue it the other way, that there should be only state schools. Well, that's what they have
1: argued up until, essentially. That is the main argument that you hear, but I, you know, if you sit back and you think about it, I can't think of any good argument for that model, unless, you have a totalitarian society.
0: Let me pose a, an, an argument to you. Um, so in the case of of private schools, for instance, there, there are some elite private schools. I'm sure you could name a couple, I could name a couple. Um, but I do know of a, at least two that have tuition fees of $15,000 per student per year. And so I guess the question would be, is that fair that that school would get all of the state funding that a public school would get and then in addition to that parents would be able to pay as much or more in order to get that elite level of education shouldn't those parents if they're willing to pay that amount of money for tuition shouldn't they pay a hundred percent of the cost and not get subsidized at all how would you how would you respond to that
1: i think that's ridiculous if you're going to build your two million dollar mansion on the outskirts of the city or in the city, you don't expect to have to pay for your own hydro lines and sewer lines and water services, do you? No. It's a basic public utility. Public education is currently being delivered in our society as if it was a basic utility. Okay, let's accept that, but let's just change the delivery model. That's that's the basic logic here. So uh, there are better ways to teach our kids, other than in uh, state-manacled and dominated and union-controlled schools. Let's use the money we're currently spending on that model on a more diverse model which allows for greater freedom and greater autonomy, and let's do it that way. And if some people want to do that and put extra bells and whistles on, well, that's that's, that's fair enough too. You're not going to ban Mercedes or BMWs Mm. or Rolls Royces from our roads, but you're still going to have the same basic license fees for people driving those cars on our roads.
0: Then let me ask you another question that would come up is, Isn't it the case, though, that those private schools, not only would they have greater means with tuition to pay for a better education for their kids, but they can cherry pick. That's what you hear from the public school system is that public schools have to take all comers of all abilities and some very complex needs. And those schools that can go private are able to just take the kids of average and above ability and then um, don't have to deal with the extra costs associated of, of dealing with those children with challenges. And so is, is does that make a case why there shouldn't be parity in funding?
1: I don't think so. Um, I think there are a couple of things that are conflated and mixed up there. Uh, it's going ahead. Uh, once again, we get back to my basic doctrine that every child or what we really want is we want an, educated, an education suited to the child. And um, the kids that are being cherry-picked, uh, whatever that may, may mean, maybe they're getting an education that's better suited to them than, would, than they would have had uh, where they were located previously. If We take, the, take the, the challenge of the special needs child, the challenge of the special needs child that is not easily accommodated mm-hmm. in a regular public school for a whole variety of ways or means. I think it is likely the case that a specialized school, a special independently organized and operated school that is designed from the ground up to cater to the needs and the talents of that child will give, give the child a better education. That's, that's all we're talking about. I don't really see what the problem is with schools attracting kids that want to go to that school and uh, think the school is well-suited to uh, what they want, how they learn their strengths and weaknesses, what they want to achieve in life. Uh, that's fine. The problem, I, I don't know what the problem is, but there's, there seems to be this strange kind of resentment at, at work when it comes to elite schools. We have elite everything else, but not we have elite schools. It's not as if the public's being asked to pay for them. The public's not being asked to pay any extra for the elite schools. Public has no right to say they can't exist. The money that if everybody, if every, if the state pays for every child to be educated and then parents or somebody else, maybe the kid signs a contract with a hockey team or with Hollywood or whatever, and somebody else wants to pay extra over and above the basic educational allowance.
0: What on earth is wrong with that? It happens everywhere else in life. Ah, you know where it doesn't happen though, is in healthcare. Maybe this is a bit oh, of a sidebar. You know. Where did Bouchard go for his leg surgery? <laughs> America. But maybe Not that's the problem, America. isn't it? Maybe that's the problem, isn't it? Is that I think that they're reflexively, because we know how our healthcare system operates, there is this notion that every, every child should go to a public, f- publicly funded school and parents shouldn't pay a dollar out of pocket, maybe it's because that's how we do operate our healthcare system. So let me argue at the other side, because there are often movements where parents violently oppose any kind of school fees. Should we be having that kind of conversation that it should be 100% government funded and no parent should have to pay out of pocket for any portion of the child's education?
1: Well, you've just you've just said with the church, elite school and the thing that that's not going to work. Parents are always going to want to provide an advantage for their particular child if they possibly can, and they're going to they're going to do that. So I don't think you can stop parents from investigating. You know, about a third of the parents in Ontario over the last ten years have paid um, private tutoring agencies to provide services for their well, child. Right? So, I didn't
0: know but, that.
1: We know that's a fact of life. You've only got to look at the yellow pages, look at, look at Kijiji, look around. You, you've got these storefront tutoring services, um, which are in storefront miles all over, and there's a market for them, and people are responding to that. And in addition to that, apart from the glitzy things, you've got people that uh, advertise on Kijiji. You know, it's almost surreptitious. Um, I will provide. I will provide algebra lessons for your child for a, for a minimal fee. Uh, that happens. That's happening in society. Are we going to outlaw that too? I don't think so. What the market. Are we, what are we going to do about the internet now? Now, now the internet learning, remote learning, as we have all come to realize over the last 18 months, is a big thing. Um, it's not a substitute for regular in-classroom school experiences doesn't even come close to touching it, but it's great for some kinds of learning. So when we're talking for, um, we're talking about um, clearly defined high school subjects, it can be a great way of learning for the motivated student.
0: Are we going to roll those two? I think all roads lead back to choice just as we were talking about let me let me Mm -hmm. let me uh just in our final moments here uh talk about the global index for freedom index index, yes yeah so i want to understand a little about how that uh how that is is determined because i I found it interesting that on a scale of uh, i guess zero to a hundred of freedom education freedom ireland is at the top 99 points they get, uh, followed by Netherlands, 89. And Canada's middling. We've got, we score 55 out of 100 and we're sort of at the same level as South Africa, which has a score of 54 out of 100. So uh, presumably the higher, you want to see your uh, Canada get higher on that, on that uh, index. What do they measure? What would we need to do in order to improve our score?
1: Well, first of all, there's government guarantee of educational freedom. That's the most important thing. On the index now, if we would, when the uh, when the body um, I forget their name, when when whoever it is that does this, does it the next time, Canada is going to go up. It's going to go up a lot because of Alberta's uh, recent reforms to its education act, where it has written the right, uh, parents' right, to choose the education for their child into the edu- the preamble of the education act. One of the reasons Ireland and Netherland are at the top of the list is they have school choice written into their constitutions. Hmm. Now, if Canada had school choice written, if Canada recognized freedom to education in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we would have a higher score too. And guess what? Uh, We'd probably have um, support for school choice in Ontario, which, uh, which, which we don't have now, and we may well have much more varied education choices in the rest of the country, too. So the the key thing, the first key thing, is guaranteed, recognized, recognized right to education freedom, school choice. Second thing is government financial support for freedom of choice. Now, in the Netherlands, most of the schools are operated by municipal, which are in some ways against the school boards, but they're local, or philanthropic, or religious, or community organizations. So they they have essentially done away with school boards, and they have done, well, they never had them, is the point. And um, their, educate, their state educational authorities uh, occupy primarily as supervisory and regulatory, rather than a more direct control, which is what we see in most of North America. And then you, uh, you have to factor in um, enrollment of, proportion of enrollment in independent schools. Those are the major contributing features.
0: So let me just get a final question uh, to you then on that. If we were higher up on this scale of education freedom, if we were at 99, what difference would it make? What What would be the outcomes we'd be looking for that that we're not getting now by being middle of the pack?
1: We would have a much more satisfied group of parents and students. We would have a much more fulfilled teaching profession. We would have a much more varied and resilient workforce and society. We may not do as well as we're doing now on uh, the PISA academic achievement tests, we might do better. I don't know, can't guarantee. But but one doesn't want to promote education freedom and one doesn't want to promote school choice using the argument that it will improve test scores Mm. because there's there's no reason to think that it will. But it will improve the things I've just touched upon. Uh, It'll improve diversity, there'll be a greater range of different kinds of educational opportunities, a greater range of schools. There will be more specialized schools. There will be a wider range of school curricula available. There'll be different philosophies. There'll be schools that uh, have quite different mixes of curriculum content. And there will be um, much, I think, I I will be prepared to, wager we would have generally a more satisfied group of parents and students and a more satisfied group of education Okay.
0: thank you so much for the conversation today i appreciate it
1: oh i enjoyed it tremendously uh welcome back anytime
0: and we will take you up on that that's derek allison he is a professor emeritus in education at the at western university and senior fellow for the Fraser institute We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org.